Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Teaching through Colossians at the chapel. If you're missing, if, if today's the only day you're here and you want to catch up, you can catch the messages on our website or on iTunes. Just teaching through the book of Colossians. This great letter from the Apostle Paul, probably from a Roman prison cell about a thousand miles away to the church at Colossae that had been started by Epaphras, one of Paul's disciples, and we're learning a lot. The message this morning is honor God in relationships. Relationships are important. I had a conversation with one of our staff about three years ago, and I knew he was dating somebody, so I said, how's your relationship with your girlfriend? He said, well, we're about to have the DTR. How many people know what the DTR is? Tell me. Define the relationship. What that means is every now and then it's a good idea when you're dating just to make sure where you are, that you're still on the same page, heading in the same direction. If you check your date's social media and under relationship status it says it's complicated, probably would be a good time to have the DTR, okay, define the relationship. We're going to look at four relationships this morning. We're going to look at relationships between a husband and wife, between parents and their children, between slaves and masters, and ultimately our relationship with God. The passage we're going to look at is the verse right before that says, In everything you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that kind of capsulizes what Paul's about to teach. First couple of chapters of Colossians were very doctrinal, setting a foundation for the next two chapters of Colossians, the final two chapters, which is just real practical. So relationships, the marriage relationship, that's God's idea. God created marriage in the garden. We're going to look at that in just a minute. I just celebrated my 40th wedding anniversary. I know you're looking at me thinking, man, you're young. Nobody was thinking that, were you? Back in April, my wife and I have been married 40 years. I've known my wife since we were five years old. We dated in high school. We dated in college. We're still dating, but we got married 40 years ago. And so I'm real sensitive to people's idea about marriage. For some, especially men, they make jokes about marriage. Wives, don't elbow them right now. You can do that later. But it really hit me. We were out to dinner a couple of years ago for our anniversary, and the owners of the restaurant came out and sang Happy Anniversary to us. I didn't know there was a Happy Anniversary. I'm pretty sure it was the same tune for Happy Birthday. They just inserted Anniversary. And the lady sitting in the booth right behind us said, Well, congratulations or condolences, whichever applies. And I thought she was trying to be funny. But I'm a little offended by the fact, as a pastor, we're getting married so wrong in our society. The home life, and that's what we're looking at this morning, is, is the most important social institution. It's way more important than Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Yik Yak, Patty Whack, Give Your Dog a Bone. It's more important than any of that stuff. And, and God has demonstrated through the way families work. So let me read verses 18 through 20, or through, actually through verse 1 of chapter 4, as we look this morning at the importance of relationships. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children, exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. 
It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So just to set the foundation of this teaching, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to Christian families, husbands and wives, children who are being raised in a Christian home, slaves and masters who are also part of a Christian home who are going to the same church together. So Paul writes, first of all, about marriage. I've got to back up when you talk about marriage, and you've got to go to the garden. You've got to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's where marriage is created. And it's interesting. Well, let me just read a brief passage from Genesis 2, 18, and then 21 and 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you hear a lot in the news or a lot in social media about marriage. Marriage is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's it's God's design. God created marriage, so let's do it God's way. So the first thing we see is, in chapter 1, there's seven times that God looked at what he had created, and it was good. But he says in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's not good for a man to be alone. Can we just acknowledge that, guys? It's not good to be alone. You leave a guy, follow a guy around for about half a day, and you'll realize he don't need to be left alone. And so God recognized that, and this was not a surprise to God. God didn't say, you know what? I've created male and female of all the animals. I kind of forgot something. No, this was his plan for the beginning. But he did it in the way he did it so that the man would recognize, you know what? I'm naming all these animals. They're male and females of all the animals. None of them look that good to me. So what is God going to do to solve my problem? I don't want to be alone. And God never intended for man to be alone. Keep in mind, Adam had fellowship with God. He had fellowship with all the animals. But that was not what God's ultimate plan for him was. It was to make a woman, make him a helper suitable to him. And when you hear the word helper, you think, okay, that means I'm subservient to the man. That is not what the word means at all. In fact, more often in the Old Testament, the word helper is used to apply to God himself. So ladies, what Paul is teaching is wives be subject to your husband. It literally means to willingly, voluntarily rank under his leadership. That's God's plan from the beginning. So first of all, It's not good for man to be alone. And God's going to create a helper. And verse 24, that's why a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. Literally, they become glued together. They become one. That's why you hear at weddings, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Because to separate one means something's going to get torn. And divorce is horrible. It's painful. There's people here that have been divorced, and they can tell you it's, it's very painful. And so God's design from the beginning is it wouldn't be that way. God's design from the beginning is that a man would leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So why did God do that? I could probably list more than one or two or three. I'm going to give you three reasons I think God created marriage. The first one is for companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. So God created Eve. And I think when Eve approached Adam, Adam goes, that's it. 
That's more like it. Yay, God. Thank you, because none of these animals were doing it for me. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I shall call her Eve or woman because she was taken out of man. So first is companionship. Second is procreation. That's how the earth gets full. God in Genesis 1.28 says to the man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam lived to be about 930 years old. Doesn't tell us how old Eve was, but she's probably about the same age. They had many children. Some of them are named, but at some point it just said they had many sons and daughters. So the earth is populated, first of all, by God created Adam. Then he created Eve. After that, it was Adam and Eve that gave birth to the children that ultimately are part of our ancestral chart up to Noah and then from Noah on forward. So marriage is for companionship. It's for procreation, but it's also for illustration. Let me read Ephesians 5, parallel passage, same author, Paul, teaching about marriage. He goes into more detail in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and 25. In fact, let me start with verse 21. He's been talking about relationships in the church, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we're to be subject to each other in the church, to consider others more important than ourselves. Then you get to verse 22, wives, to your own husbands be subject as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So you see the point of illustration? The illustration of the way the wife is related to her husband is the way the church is related to Christ. He's the head of the church. We are his body. We are, we are those who are called out to be believers. Then he says, but as the church is also subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what's Paul's word? Paul's words to the wives is really one thing, and that is be subject to your husband. Willingly submit to his leadership. Doesn't mean that you're a second-rate citizen. Doesn't mean you're inferior. It just means that's God's design for marriage. But we miss sometimes the true significance of what Paul's teaching to men. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean? That means that a man is willing to lay down his life for his life. That doesn't just mean you're going to jump out in front of a train and save her life. It means you live your life in such a way that you put her more important than yourself. And if you do that, wives don't have trouble being subject to that kind of leadership. The problem is when the husband says, when I say jump, you ask me how high. That is not what Paul's teaching. That's not the way marriage works in the Bible. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then... Secondly, he says, and do not be embittered towards them. So women, wives, are subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the proper way of the Lord. Husbands love their wives just as in the same manner that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he says, don't be embittered toward them. Don't be irritable. In fact, it's an imperative. It literally says, stop being bitter. So some of what Paul writes, you've got to understand, he had not been at Colossae. He's hearing this from Epaphras. And so Epaphras is apparently saying, one of the issues we're having is marriage in the church. And, and the reason is, is because the culture that the church is born out of, men and women have come to faith in Christ. They're still acting like they're lost in their relationships with each other. And that's, not what, that's why Paul writes, this is the way you act as a Christian believer, as a Christian husband, Christian wife. It's different than the world. So stop being bitter and stop being irritable towards your spouse. Then we get to children. Any children here? Well, yeah, in a sense, we're all children, right? We all had parents, whether we knew them or not. My, both of my parents had passed away. But it says, children, one thing, 
be obedient to your parents. I love the literal meaning of the word obedient. It means to hear under or listen attentively. Don't raise your hand, but if, you're, if your mama or daddy ever said anything to you and then had to follow that with, are you listening to me? Because <laughs> we can tell by the look on your face it went in one ear and out the other. Maybe, parents, what we need to say sometimes is, are you listening to me? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Okay, what did I just say? <laughs> You'll find out whether they were listening attentively or not. So, children, be obedient. Continuous action, habitual, to your parents in what? In all things. Now, let, let me just say this overarching over this. He's writing to, to Christian households. And so if the thought crosses your mind as a wife, you're thinking, what if my husband's telling me to do something that's against God? What if my parents are telling me to do something that's outside the will of God? Obey God. But Paul's writing to Christians who he's assuming that's not the issue. He's just giving them the roadmap for how to live a married life and life with children. So... Parents or children, obey your parents in all things. Why? Because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. That's the way God has designed it. God's placed you under their authority. So obey them. Listen attentively to what they're saying. But then it says to fathers, do not exasperate. Literally stimulate the anger. It creates an attitude that's impossible to please. I've met some of the sharpest young people, and I knew their parents. And I'll give you two examples. One of them, I went up to one of them and said, you know what, your dad's a hero to me. Or I said, he's one of my heroes. And his son said, he is my hero. I thought, wow, what a great testimony. Then I went up to another whose father was a pastor, and I said, I love your father's preaching on grace. She said, I wish he'd give me some. That was a child who had perfect straight A's in school, was an athlete, but her dad wasn't living out at home what he was preaching on Sunday mornings. So be careful, parents, that we don't exasperate our children to the point where they never feel like they can add up, measure up. All they ever hear from us is complaints and negativity so that your children will not lose heart. Parents can, can, can destroy the heart of that child by not disciplining properly. Let, let me give you four thoughts on disciplines. These are kind of the Beatitudes out of this passage. First, if discipline is going to be effective, it needs to be clear. Kids need to know what the expectations are and what the consequences are of not meeting that expectation. Parents, it may be that you write it down. There's issues going on, and so you, you look and you say, okay, if you do this again, these are the consequences. So you've got to be clear what the expectations are. Then you've got to be consistent. This takes work. I know how easy it is to get lazy, get tired, and even though the behavior is there, the discipline's not there because you're just worn out. But that creates conflict in the home where the kids are like, I know what is clearly expected of me, but I did it this time and didn't get discipline for it. And there's a big difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline has a future in mind. God disciplines those whom he loves. Punishment is kind of the death penalty. Punishment is I'm done with you, and this what I'm doing to you has no future in it. Discipline does. So be clear, be consistent. Be consistent in this. I remember... My dad, I never heard my dad use profanity. The older I got, every now and then a word would slip out, and he usually was never in anger. So I thought, I don't know, I was about 10 years old, 12 years old, so I just tried it out myself. How's this going to work? And he laughed, and I thought, I love seeing people laugh. So about a week later, I used the same word and got a spanking. I thought, what changed from last week to this week? Last week it was funny. This week you realize it's becoming a habit. So be clear. Be consistent, 
Be fair. Make sure the consequences of the behavior fits the behavior. One of the books by Robert McGee who wrote Search for Significance also wrote a book called Loving Discipline, and he talks about here's how you know how to discipline your child. Find out what some of their favorite things to do are, and that's what consequences become. For example, I did a disciple now in Arkansas, and the discipline for this family was anything the child did, they sent him to his room. Well, I spent the night in the room. He was at a different house for disciple now. I'm in his room. His room had a television, a refrigerator, a microwave. It had every game you could imagine to play on the television. I thought, this isn't discipline. This is like vacation. Go to your room. I was heading there anyway. So make sure that the consequence fits the infraction, but don't always take away the most important thing. If the most important thing to them is sports, don't always take that away. Make sure it fits the infraction. As a youth pastor, the one I hated was this. Johnny won't be at church Wednesday night for youth group because he's not doing good in school. So the discipline was always take church away from him. Be careful that you're not taking church away. If Johnny needs to stay home and study on Wednesday night, I get it. But if that's just become your punishment for everything because you know how much he enjoys coming to church for youth group, don't always take away the most important thing. Be loving. Be loving. Make sure your child knows the discipline that they're experiencing is because you love them. And it would be a good idea to point out in Scripture because there are several places that says God disciplines those whom he loves. If you've never experienced the discipline of God, you need to ask yourself the question, why? Why haven't I? Is it because I'm not his child? Now, I'm not saying do things so that you can't experience his discipline, but y'all, we're still sinners. And there's going to be times that we do things that God disciplines us to bring us back into right relationship with him. So be clear, be consistent, be fair, be loving. And then the last one, I call this relationships at work. But Paul clearly is talking about slaves and masters. And so Christian homes would have slaves. Christian homes would have masters. And wouldn't it be interesting that you're both believers, you're going to church together, and more verbiage is used to describe the relationship between slaves and masters and masters and slaves in this passage than it is between husbands and wives and children and their parents. And so there are principles here that apply in the workplace. But I don't want to jump to that too quickly where you think, well, he's talking about slaves. Absolutely. In that culture, it's estimated that in, in Roman cities, Big cities in Rome, over half the people you'd see walking the streets were slaves. Here's how they became slaves. Either, number one, they were spoils of war. So the Rome had conquered their country, brought them back, and enslaved them. And there was typically periods of like seven years you would be a slave, or maybe to the age of 30, and after that, you were free. In fact, you could earn money as a slave. Slaves didn't just do menial labor. They did professional jobs. You could actually be a doctor and be a slave who was trained in medicine. So one is to be captured. The other is you could sell yourself into slavery. So some slavery was voluntary. Some slavery was involuntary. Paul himself in several of his letters said, Paul, doulos, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is willingly following Christ as Christ is the master. And Paul recognizes, I'm serving him. So Paul says to the slaves, in all things obey those who are in authority over you, your masters on earth. The next part of this passage breaks down into four twos. So there's two things, two things, two things, two things. So follow along as we unpack that. So here's how we, here's how we do service, not with external service. That word literally means site labor. What does that mean? Don't just do the right thing when your master's looking. Okay? 
So don't just as an employee of wherever you work, do things only when the boss is looking. But do things with sincerity of heart. Be grateful for the job that you've got and do that job to the best of your ability. Do it with sincerity of heart. How do you do that? Well, two more things. Fearing the Lord. So you do it because you fear the Lord, not because you fear man. Whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord rather than men. So fear the Lord. Do your job for the Lord. So apply that in the first century. Paul's writing to slaves and masters, and he's saying, Slaves, listen, I'm not condoning slavery. In fact, Philemon, he talks about a slave, Onesimus, that he's asking the owner of that slave to free Onesimus so he can come back and help Paul. In fact, he's saying, if he owes you anything, chalk it up to my account. So in the first century, obey your masters in the fear of the Lord and serve them rather than man. You're not just doing it for our service. But the same thing's true for us as we work at whatever job God's given us that we get a paycheck from. You serve the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord two things. You'll receive either negatively or positively. You'll receive an inheritance. It's the Lord whom you serve, and so serve in ministry, serve in work, do everything as though you're doing it for the Lord because he sees everything. Your boss may not see everything you do. In fact, you may think, I didn't get notice for that, or somebody else got credit for that. Well, guess who does see it? God does, and God rewards you with an inheritance. But stated negatively, if you do wrong, you'll receive consequences of the wrong, and that without partiality. So Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. Yes, you go to church with them. Hopefully you're treating each other right at church, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Last thing the word to masters, and two things that he says to masters. First, treat your servants, treat your slaves with justice and fairness. So if you're an employer in the room, apply the first, first century teaching to 21st century truth. Treat your employees with fairness, with justice. In other words, equitable in act and fairness, likeness in proportion. So masters in the first century, treat your servants correctly. Paul doesn't ask them to release them. People say, well, Paul's condoning slavery. No, Paul's just acknowledging slavery existed in the first century. Today, it doesn't exist in our culture. It does in other parts of the world. So I'm applying it to bosses. Knowing this, bottom line, that you also have a boss. You also have a master. So whether you're a slave or a servant, an employee, or whether you're a boss, master, one in authority, the ground at the cross is level. We all have a master in heaven, and we need to acknowledge that. So the way I treat people that are under me or the way I treat my boss that's over me should always be remembered. Should, the thinking should always be, you know what, he or she's also got a boss. It's the supreme boss, the Lord Jesus, God in heaven, and which is the most important relationship. So we've looked at the relationship between wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves, masters, or employees and employers, but the most important relationship is your relationship with God. In fact, that's going to tell how you do all these other things. Men and women, listen, if you're in a marriage and one of you doesn't know the Lord, pray for the salvation of that other person. Because in marriage, the two become one flesh under the Lordship of Christ. Children, if your parents, if one of your parents does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, pray for that mom, pray for that dad. Maybe pray for both of them. It may be that you're being raised in a home where neither one of your parents indicate any evidence of being a child of God. 
They don't go to church. They may take you to church, but they themselves don't go to church. Pray for them. Pray for your boss. Pray for your employees. Pray that they would know the ultimate master, and that is God himself. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Lord, thank you.